It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx. It's results season, so as well as an opportunity to offer congratulations or commiserations to all our hordes of teenage listeners getting their GCSE and A-levels this week, it's a chance to talk about education policy. This is the first year since the pandemic that anyone has sat public examinations, which means an inevitable readjustment and many children disappointed with their grades. But does that mean the system is unfair? To discuss this, I'm joined by Dr David James, who's Deputy Head of Lady Eleanor Hollis School in London and a regular contributor to CapEx, for a conversation that ranged from the iniquity of coursework to ideological assaults on the curriculum to the importance of independent schools. But I began by asking what all this really means for our children. Uh, so good morning, David. Thank you so much for joining me on the CapEx podcast. And we're speaking today over Zoom on what I imagine is an incredibly busy day for you. It's, it's GCSE Results Day. Um, and every year at exam season, education policy comes under massive scrutiny, and, and we'll get into that on this podcast. But this is also a real a human story, isn't it, about children who've had their education horribly disrupted by the pandemic. They're the first group in two years to sit these public examinations, and this is really about their future. So I just wanted to start by perhaps you could give us a bit of a sense of what your students are feeling today. Well, I, I hope uh, that they're feeling euphoric <laughs> and very happy with their results. Um, you know, there will be inevitably, both in my school and, and in the schools around the country, uh, stories of great success, uh, stories of frustration and disappointment. And we might come back to this later on. There has to be in any uh, assessment process which, is, um, which has integrity. You know, you will get losers and you'll get winners. So we have to have that at A-level and, and GCSE. Talking to other teachers in other schools, uh, they we the students that they were working with were, I think, but for both GCSE and A level, happy to be doing examinations rather than continuous assessment or teacher assessed grades. Um, and this is often not reported in the press. But that actual sense of I don't like using this phrase closure um, for those courses is uh, was meaningful to the students. Um, so there was a sense of calm when they were doing the exams. It felt right, it felt normal, natural. Uh, they'd been preparing for it. And, um, and you know, we will, we will see as the day unfolds how the national picture uh, looked. Um, uh, yes, it, it, it was a welcome return to normality uh, for both GCSE students and A-level uh, A students. 
and this is going to come out tomorrow, but we're recording on Thursday. So as you say, we don't yet know what the results picture looks like, but we're expecting uh, a, a lower number of, of top grades. Um, yeah. And we're going to hear, I expect, a lot of complaints about that. A lot of individual students are going to feel very disappointed. Mm -hmm. um, but this was inevitable, wasn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and inevitable and predictable. The government have said that they're going to, to do that, that, uh, you know, they had to return uh, those top grades to the grades which were closer to 2019. They'll be quite down to 2019 and probably be back to 2019 levels next year. Uh, and they and they had to do it, you know, at both A-level and GCSE, there was significant grade inflation. I think the top grades at A-level almost doubled between 2019 and, and uh, 2021. And you can't have that and also have uh, a functioning uh, admissions process at universities uh, for sixth form colleges as well, when people, uh, students transition from uh, uh, GCSE to, to A-level or other uh, qualifications. So you have to have that. You can't all have winners you can't all have everybody can't get nines and eights or a stars and a's so i i completely understand why students picking up their results today or, or last week for a level results and then they compare them to the students that have gone before them in the last few years will be uh, disappointed and they will see it as fair i don't know what you can do about that you have to return it to something closer to the normality of previous years but of course there are those who argue that exams are not a fair way of assessing achievement in and of themselves. What do you say to that? What, I mean, are you, you've been a strong advocate on CapEx and elsewhere, the fact that exams are actually the fairest way to assess children. Um, what do you say to critics of that view? Well, th this was, um, this is particularly pertinent now, namely not, not only because of GCSE's results coming out and we're in the, you know, the, that, that process, but of course, Tony Blair's Institute for Global Change published a report uh, yesterday and I, I wrote uh, a response to that in, in CapEx. So you have critics of exams saying that they're unfair, they don't test deep knowledge, uh, uh, but actually all the evidence that we have collected over the last two years and when we look at other national systems of developed countries, examinations clearly are the fairest way of assessing achievement. Um, they're less prone to being gained. Uh, they are fairer on disadvantaged children. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the exams do test knowledge and understanding. So exams get a bad press at the moment, uh, but they are still the best option. There's no alternative that the critics have come up with, which are evidence-based, which are fairer and which are, uh, provide uh, clearer uh, guides or measures of success. Uh, so I've said before, any reforms to GCSE or A-level will have to be uh, evidence-based and we can't afford to take risks with children's prospects because of uh, ideology. Ideology, I would argue, Daisy Christodoula has also argued this, which is outdated. You know, many of the reforms being put forward look old. They're, they're rehashed, recycled arguments that we were having in the 1980s and the 1990s. And um, things have moved on since then. I mean, let's talk a bit about the evidence that we gathered during the pandemic. I mean, as you said, uh, the, the percentage of A-stars and A's at A-level went up from, I think, something like 25% in 2019 to 44.3% in 2020. It can't just be that kids got that much smarter. I mean, it's plainly yeah. true that uh, teacher assessment led to massive grade inflation. 
Uh, but, but I want to get into the, the equality argument, because I think, as you were saying, you know, continuous assessment actually benefits middle class kids who have lots of books at home and parents who are going to engage with them. And is that what we saw in the past two years? Yeah, it's difficult to say. I mean, um, there were various comments online. A journalist from the FT was saying that independent schools, he used this word, fiddled the system uh, last year. But like other people have said, there was no system last year to fiddle. There were no clearly defined parameters or criteria. Uh, you know, the, the, the then Secretary of State, the Department for Education, effectively removed themselves uh, from the process and removed themselves from control, controlling uh, grade distribution. So, um, you know, independent schools, when lockdown first occurred, they just we just carried on teaching. Yes, we had the resources to do that, to sh quickly shift to using uh, online platforms. It's, a lot of state schools didn't. Um, so those independent school children were, it, it, again, not all, but were uh, in touch with their teachers almost from day one. Uh, so they had more teaching. Uh, so that may have resulted in uh, better grades uh, or more top grades. But, um, you know, you can't retrospectively then when you say, well, there are no rules. You know, you, you set your own grades based on your contextual factors. Uh, you can't then retrospectively, once you've done that, start to look into the tea leaves of, of, and try and find patterns uh, and, and then try to uh, rewrite the narrative and blame independent schools for doing this or grammar schools for doing that. Um, once you remove yourself from that process, uh, as the Secretary of State and the DfE did, then you have to accept the consequences. And children who come from uh, backgrounds with lots of cultural capital, whether they're in state schools or independent schools, will probably have done better. But this returns us to the proposals put forward by Tony Blair's Institute yesterday. If you, those, those children will probably do well in high stakes final examinations, whether it's GCSE or A-level. They'll probably also do well with these rather vague, fluffy, warm, cuddly portfolios of collaborative learning and, uh, and, other, and other skills. So they'll do fine. What we've got to look at is what about the children who won't do so well? You know, what, what about those kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, who don't have iPads and laptops at home? You know, there are, another, there are arguments about, them, well, let's move all exams online. Let's, you know, let's be cutting edge and have online exams. The IB, the International Baccalaureate Organization, have done that, have tried to do that. These things have been tested. But the practicalities of doing that, again, with disadvantaged children who may not have laptops at home, um, it is, is going to be difficult. Uh, so I think any reforms to GCSE and A-level have to start with that. How will those disadvantaged children be further disadvantaged? Will they be, or will they be advantaged uh, by it? And um, unless we can answer those questions, we can't begin to fiddle around with, um, with assessments. I want to come back to some of the things you said there about cultural capital and, and particularly about Tony Blair's report. But I guess another big criticism that we get around this time of year is the mental health impact of exams on, on very young children. Um, and, you know, especially on top of the, the terrible impact um, of the pandemic on this particular cohort of children. What do you say to that? Why do we need to put kids through such a stressful time at such a young age? Well, COVID was obviously uh, stressful for, for children. Overnight, uh, they lost their friendship groups. They lost uh, their routines. For a lot of children, uh, schools provided them with a safe, warm, 
place to go to uh, and, and, and that was suddenly removed. It was catastrophic for a lot of families. And, um, and, I, and I think we're probably going to live with the consequences of, of COVID and lockdown and those children for some time. There's no evidence, and Sam Friedman wrote about this in his paper for the Institute for Government this week, and Professor Rob Coe was referred to it in an article in the New Statesman this week. There is no evidence that exams actually have a ne negative effect on the mental health of children. I think, again, adults are retrofitting their own angst and projecting them onto their children and saying, well, I still have nightmares of my exam hall. Um, and, and so, you know, children must be suffering as well. Well, yeah, I mean, they are stressful, but you can't insulate children from stress. You know, you, you know the, the exams are stressful. There's good stress as well. Stress can be motivating. Stress can clarify. Um, uh, bad stress is when you don't have capacity to cope with it for other sometimes external factors the exams themselves may not be stressful other factors home life the journey into uh, school i don't know other factors which schools have uh, uh, less control over may be contributing to that the stress around the examinations but um Going back to continuous assessment, that's also incredibly stressful. You know, if you go to schools in the United, some schools in the United States, you look at their portfolios, you know, the, and, and schools which are, yeah, every piece of work over two years, let's say, contributes to your final grade. In that. And that, how stressful is that? It's a prolonged period of tortuous assessment that just uh, can also be assessed, uh, can be assessed meaningfully or not, but can be incredibly stressful. So again, those people who say, oh, exams are stressful, provide us with the evidence. Show us the evidence where um, we can say without doubt, categorically, that exams are uh, have a negative impact on children's mental health and well-being. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And also, preparing for this podcast, I spoke to a friend of mine who's a teacher, and she said that, that all teachers hate continuous assessment, not just because it's a lot more bureaucracy for them, well, but yeah, also yeah. because exams provide an independent measure of their own ability as teachers. Yes. And that continuous assessment means that there's no kind of independent um, marking of the quality of teaching itself. Yeah. You know, the, the workload that teacher assessed grades and central assessed grades in the last year added to uh, teachers it is, um, it has been reported, but it, it, I think you only really understand it if you're a teacher. Uh, it's, um, it was hugely time consuming, incredibly demanding, and exams removed that. You know, overnight, schools became awarding centres and teachers became examiners. We removed that barrier uh, between parents and students and, and examiners. That that went, and then um, all of a sudden, uh, uh, teachers were on the front line of assessments, and and exams protect teachers and schools from that, and um, and that that's uh, that's meaningful as well. That's that's valuable. I, I think another thing that is rarely discussed, but teachers I think would understand it, is that uh, examinations help motivate children. They also, I think, in my experience, have a, uh, a, a re make a real difference to behavior in the classroom. You know, if you've got uh, children who are unmotivated or poorly behaved, they're more likely to uh, work uh, for coursework or for final exams if it's going to contribute to their final grade. Trying to motivate some, now, high achieving, ambitious, bright students will probably, again, work 
irrespective of what they're working towards in the sense that you know, they'll just want the best possible outcome and they'll be motivated and work hard to do that. But, um, but we all teachers have, uh, if they've been teaching particularly key stage three, key stage four, uh, that's year nine, 10 and 11, will have encountered classes where children will say, does this count, miss? Uh, sir, to my final grade, and if you say no, you can see them automatically. The lights beginning to go <laughs> off, um, you know, and 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 the focus is not is not there. Whereas if you say actually, yeah, this piece of writing for English. This is hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f- are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 20% of your final grade in English. Oh, well, okay, so that's meaningful. That that matters. Well, if you say this text that you're studying, this you know, Macbeth is going to be, uh, you know, it, it, it counts for fifteen percent of your final grade because you know it ca- carries this amount of marks in the final examination. But again, that can make a difference uh, in terms of, from a teaching perspective as well as from a, a student's ability to focus. Um, again, these things are often overlooked um, or. They're characterized as what they call backwash uh, in uh, circles, which are critical of exams, namely that exams shape or the preparation for exams shape the teaching right back to the beginning of the course. So you start a GCSE course thinking, what, how many marks is this question worth? I'm going to just drill down into this question and only teach that rather than exploring wider aspects of that, that uh, topic. So, um, yeah, I don't know how we got to that point, but uh, um, I think that you can only understand the uh, the workload that uh, coursework, continuous assessment adds to teachers' uh, inboxes and uh, briefcases and bags if you live through it yourself. What about the argument? And we've we've talked a bit about the the value of exams for teachers and for education, but but what about for kids' future employment prospects? This is something that the Tony Blair report we mentioned mm. goes into a lot it says employers um don't find these grades useful and instead we should be looking at the four c's so that's critical thinking creativity communication and collaboration problem solving i saw um one kind of wag on twitter said that they could think of another c for the for the former prime minister um 
<laughs> but 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 what do you make of that idea? What what do you make of of this sense that that GCSEs don't really prepare you for the workplace? So I I think that um, people could do worse than look at Daisy Christodoulou's uh, Twitter thread from a couple couple of days ago, where she looks at uh, the, the various myths. And of course, she's written a book on the, the seven myths of education. This debate about skills and, and stuff and knowledge. Um, you know, developing skills in students, you, you can do all these things in, in the subjects that are currently offered through GCSEs, you know, creative, critical thinking, for example, or collaborative planning, you know, the various C's that, uh, that the report um, uh, outline. These can all be explored through art, through music, through maths, through English and, and biology and, and chemistry. Um, I said in my CapEx article, it, you know, it, it, the typical employer is not Elon Musk or, or Richard Branson. You know, these are weird outliers who sort of say we should all get rid of it. We should get rid of examinations. It's more normal. It's more um, uh, usual to have an employer who is employing 15 people and it's a small business. And he or she will be looking at whether they, this candidate has got GCSEs and A-level mm -hmm. grades or other qualifications in, at, at sixth form. They'll probably go for those grades which have been set by external awarding bodies and marked by examiners rather than those set by schools and marked by teachers. They'll just see them as more reliable and understandable. And also I think that if you try to design um, uh, ex uh, assessments which prepare children for what employers want, well, it, it, the, the range of employers, is that hairdressers or is that accountants? Is that um, is that a law firm or is that a car company? And the range of employers is obviously almost unlimited. You can't expect schools to try to predict the skills that employers will want in several years' time for a, a cohort of students that is in, incredibly vary that's but what you do know is that they'll need to be numerate they'll need to be literate they'll need to have a good grounding in uh sciences and you know so that again all that can be provided by gcse G i'm not saying that gcses are perfect they might be reformed around the edges but i think once you start doing that and a levels then you're looking at reforming university uh entrance uh, admissions processes and that is vastly complex and incredibly time consuming. And again, no evidence to show that any of this would work better than the current system. I think this also gets into a deeper point, doesn't it, about the purpose of education. Of course, it's to prepare you for the workplace, but is it also to kind of grow you as a person? And I think that that is, we then touch on um, another sort of hot button issue in education, which is the curriculum. Um, and you've written for us several times in CapEx about changes to the curriculum, uh, efforts to sort of modernise it, to, to decolonise it. Um, I mean, wh where do you stand on, on this whole debate about, you know, are, what kids need to actually be learning? Well, I, I agree that there's a sort of uh, internal dichotomy with uh, the, the critics of examinations. They, they often characterise themselves as being progressive. They very often come from the liberal left. And yet they talk in terms of, edu in, of education very often in, in grad grindian utilitarian terms that everything has to be preparing these children for the workplace. You know, um, and again, this is sort of other attendant d debates and discussions around the value of, let's say, in English literature. Uh, degree and how that prepares anybody uh, for the workplace. Um, 
you know, so we absolutely don't want to have a school system which is grad grindian, which is just focused on the, the STEM uh, subjects. Um, I th I'm, I'm very uh, suspicious of uh, ideologically driven changes to the curriculum. You know, the, the decolonization of English literature, I think, is uh, proposed, I should say, uh, decolonization of uh, English curricula is, I think, uh, politically motivated and actually ends up with a, um, a worse experience for those children. I mean, you, you know, you, CapEx has carried articles uh, recently where it is um, patronizing in the extreme to say that uh, that black student uh, can only re should only really be exposed to these black writers if they're to if they're to connect uh, with them but as we say here the universality of english literature is uh, is is to be experienced by all shakespeare i think speaks to everybody because of the profound and universal themes that he explores so decolonization is often a narrowing of the curricula because it's ideologically driven. And I don't think teachers should be activists first and teachers uh, second. They should be advocates of their subject uh, and, um, and try to impart a love and a passion for that subject whenever they can, rather than a love and a passion for a political set of uh, ideas. Um, so, you know, I think that we have to look very carefully at any narrowing of uh, Key Stage 4 GCSE um, and, um, and not forget that hopefully learning should be joyful and should be inspiring and um, too many of the debates that we have around education are reductive, tendentious, ideologically driven and dull. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think that's such a good point about um, making education more dull. I mean, you again wrote a great article for us about um, uh, there was one example that removed Philip Larkin from their poetry anthology, which I just thought was such a shame because Philip Larkin is one of the most kind of accessible and popular poets in the English language. It just seems such a shame to not expose children to that. But it also makes me think, and this is something that the um, American thinker E.D. Hirsch talks about, that, that there is such a thing as um, kind of cultural literacy and that there are some things that every child should know mm. in order to be a kind of educated citizen. Do you buy that? Do you think that there's sort of certain things that every child should kind of have in their armory in order to, to be a fulfilled citizen? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I guess that you, you know, any reforms to curricula, you know, the, the question then comes up, well, who, who decides on that? Who, who decides on which authors to study or, or what, um, what uh, topics in history uh, should, be, should be studied? And there is very little time in a school timetable uh, and in, and in um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the curricular specifications to, to squeeze more stuff in. Uh, personally, as an English teacher, I think it would be uh, 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 tragic if any student leaves uh, a full-time education without at least experiencing or studying Shakespeare. I think that's part of uh, their cultural, uh, that cultural capital which should be there. So I think that um, uh, yes, there are there are uh, there is a there is a canon uh, in in my subject which I think uh, uh, all, uh, um, students should be exposed to. But um, you know, I'm aware that uh, you know when should, when should, you know, should they study Dickens? Should they study Philip Larkin? Um, 
should yeah, the, these are complex uh, debates, but you can clearly see when those debates become politicized. You know, the, the, those who seek to radically redraw what children are taught are, are very open about their political motives. You know, they, they are doing this for this reason. You know, OCR did this for this reason and advocates on Twitter or elsewhere in schools are doing it for political reasons. And we have to, re we have to reject that. That's trying to impose one set of values and a perspective, a world perspective, a worldview at the cost of another. And, and uh, teachers are not allowed to do that, then we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't promote it or endorse it. Uh, children need to be exposed to a wide range of, of thinking, of thinkers, and, um, and be open to debate. We're slightly running out of time, so I just want to get to uh, uh, another major issue in education, which is uh, selection and independent schools. So on the one hand, we have Liz Truss, um, look, looking likely to be our next prime minister, wanting to expand grammar schools. Um, and on the other hand, we have Labour wanting to remove the charitable status of independent schools. Um, you teach an independent school. I, I, I'm fairly sure I, I know where you stand on this issue, but perhaps you could explain why you think it's so important to have a, a kind of a choice, I suppose, of, of, of schools in our system. Well, that, that word is important. Parental choice, I think, uh, it should not just be ignored. And I think politicians who do that do so at a, a significant risk to them themselves, because I think that really is valuable. Um, I don't think um, uh, forcing schools to close by applying political or economic pressure on them uh, benefits the country. I think we need as many excellent schools now as we can possibly get. So I think that, you know, if you see independent schools close, and some of them are very, very close to the edge, you know, they're not all Eton, they're not all Harrow. Um, you know, some of them are operating on very, very thin margins. And, and they're doing, you know, and, and they can often specialise, you know, you go to independent schools that are specialists in sport, uh, in music, uh, in SEND, a significant number of SEND pupils are studying in independent schools, sometimes with lots of financial support from those schools. So anything that endangers that, I think, uh, 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 makes the school system in this country weaker. And I think in, a, in an economy like uh, ours, uh, in a society as complex as ours, we need a range of, of schools, a range of ideas. I think it would be uh, disastrous to only have one school, secondary school model, you know, namely uh, a comprehensive model. I, I think that would, that would be hugely uh, reductive and would remove so much innovation and uh, new ideas in schools. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's a question of choice, uh, of innovation, of opportunity. I think that some of the best schools in the country are independent. There are lots of excellent schools in the state sector as well. And, we can learn from each other. I think, you know, we, the, there should be more interchange of ideas. There are already lots of, you know, lots and lots of partnerships going on between state schools and independent schools. Would you get, if you remove those, I think the state schools would, would suffer as a result. And I don't think that closing an independent school up the road uh, will benefit that state school down the road. You know, those children won't seamlessly move into that state school and the state school may actually not have the resources to cope with a sudden influx of children, you know. So um, again, it goes back to the advocates of change in in education, whether it's at a curriculum level, whether it's at an assessment level, whether it's at a school model level. They're very good at saying this must change. Not so good at saying, and this is what it will look like post change, and we know this will work. 
They don't, they can't, they don't have the evidence. One last thing, the independent schools close. Um, they're big employers. This is often brushed aside by people who often on the left would be up in arms if you said, well, actually, if they close, you're going to lose 300,000 jobs. You know, it, you know, that would be uh, disastrous. So you would put a lot of teachers out of work. You also have a huge impact on those secondary jobs that rely uh, on those independent schools uh, functioning. You'd also, let's not forget, have a big impact on the lives of those children. The critics of independent schools often forget that it, um, it, they are schools filled with children, often, uh, you know, just the same as other children from state schools. They may or may not be coming from more affluent backgrounds. So, you know, I've said this elsewhere this week, um, that if, when we start criticizing independent schools, this school shaming has to stop. We wouldn't think of criticizing a state school uh, publicly and, and slagging it off on Twitter. People don't think twice about doing it about independent schools, but in those schools, there are teachers trying to do the best job they can for children who, like the children in a state school, are just trying to get the best possible grades and get a good education. Let's not forget that. I think that's a great note to end on. We've got to think about the children. Um, David, thank you so much for talking to me um, and good luck to all uh, your students today. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.